Welcome to the Dewhawk Digest, the podcast for all things Loris College. In this episode, we are thrilled to present the Loris Players' performance of The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells, adapted by Howard E. Koch and Ryan M. Decker. Ladies and gentlemen, Assistant Professor Ryan Decker, Director of the Loris Players. We know now that in the early years of the 21st century, this world was being watched closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. We know now that as human beings busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinized and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinize the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacence, people went to and fro over the earth about their little affairs, serene in the assurance of their dominion over this small spinning fragment of solar driftwood, which by chance or design, man has inherited out of the dark mystery of time and space. Yet, across an immense ethereal gulf, intellects vast, cool, and unsympathetic regarded this earth with envious eyes and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. In the 20th year of the 21st century came the great disillusionment It was near the end of October. Business was better. Fears of pandemic slightly subsided. More men and women were back at work, students back in class. On this particular evening, October 30th, 32 million people listened to this live stream. For the next 24 hours, not much change in temperature. A slight atmospheric disturbance of undetermined origin is reported over Nova Scotia, causing a low pressure area to move down rather rapidly over the northeastern states, bringing a forecast of rain accompanied by winds of light gale force. High of 66, low of 48. That was your National Weather Service report. And now, back to the music. I'm an alligator. I'm a mama papa coming for you. I'm a space invader. Ladies and gentlemen, we interrupt the music to bring you a special bulletin from the Associated Press News. This evening, Professor Farrell of the Mount Jennings Observatory, Chicago, Illinois, reports observing several explosions of incandescent gas occurring at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The spectroscope indicates the gas to be hydrogen and moving towards the Earth with enormous velocity. Professor Pearson of the observatory at Princeton confirms Farrell's observation and describes the phenomenon as, quote, like a jet blue flame shot from a gun, unquote. Wow, that's certainly out of this world. We'll be sure to keep you updated as this story develops. In the meantime, back to the music. 
Following up the news given in our bulletin a moment ago, NASA, the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, has requested the large observatories of the country to keep an astronomical watch on any further disturbances occurring on the planet Mars. Due to the unusual nature of this occurrence, we have arranged an interview with a noted astronomer, Professor Pearson, who will give us his views on this event. In a few moments, we will take you to the Princeton Observatory. ready now to take you to the Princeton Observatory. Carl Phillips, a New Jersey-based Duhawk, will interview astronomer Professor Richard Pearson. We take you now to Princeton. Is this good? Yeah. Perfect. Good evening, everyone. This is Carl Phillips speaking to you from the Observatory of Princeton. I'm standing in a large semicircular room, pitch black except for an oblong split in the ceiling. Through this opening, I can see a sprinkling of stars that cast a kind of frosty glow over the intricate mechanism of the huge telescope. Professor Pearson stands directly above me on a small platform peering through the giant lens. I ask you to be patient during any delay that may arise during our interview. Besides his ceaseless watch of the heavens, Professor Pearson may be interrupted by technology or communications. During this period, he is in constant touch with the astronomical centers of the world. Professor, may I begin our questions? At any time. Professor, would you please tell our listeners exactly what you see as you observe the planet Mars through your telescope? Nothing unusual at the moment. A red disk swimming in a blue sea. Transverse stripes across the disk. Quite distinct now, because Mars happens to be the point nearest the Earth. In opposition, as we call it. In your opinion, what do these transverse stripes signify, Professor Pearson? Not canals, I can assure you, although that's the popular conjecture of those who imagine Mars to be inhabited. From a scientific viewpoint, the stripes are merely the result of atmospheric conditions peculiar to the planet. Then you're quite convinced, as a scientist, that living intelligence as we know it does not exist on Mars? I'd say the chances against it are a thousand to one. And yet, how do you account for these gas eruptions occurring on the surface of the planet at regular intervals? I cannot account for it. 
For the benefit of our listeners, Professor, how far is Mars from the Earth? Approximately 40 million miles. <laughs> well, that seems a safe enough distance. For those just joining us now, we're speaking to you from the observatory in Princeton, New Jersey, where we are interviewing the astronomer, Professor Pearson. The Associated Press now reports that minutes ago, seismographs at the New York National History Museum registered a shock of almost earthquake intensity occurring within a radius of 20 miles of Princeton. Professor Pearson, could this possibly have something to do with the disturbances observed on the planet Mars? <laughs> Hardly. This is probably a meteorite of unusual size, and its arrival at this particular time is merely a coincidence. However, I will conduct a search, if you would care to join. Thank you, Professor. Listeners, we've been speaking to you from the observatory at Princeton, bringing you a special interview with noted astronomer Professor Pearson. This is Carl Phillips, returning you now to our studio in Dubuque. Ladies and gentlemen, a string of fascinating reports here tonight breaking from the Associated Press News. Macmillan University in Toronto, Canada, observed a total of three explosions on the planet Mars between the hours of 7.45 and 9.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 6.45 and 8.20 Central, confirming early reports received from American observatories. From Trenton, New Jersey, it is reported that a huge flaming object, believed to be a meteorite, fell on a farm in the neighborhood of Grover's Mill, New Jersey, 22 miles from Trenton. The flash in the sky was visible within a radius of several hundred miles, and the noise of the impact was heard as far north as Elizabeth. We have dispatched Carl Phillips, our Dewhawk in New Jersey, to share the scene as soon as he can reach there from Princeton. In the meantime, back to Bowie. Take a look at the Take you now to Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Carl Phillips again out of the Wilmoth Farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. Professor Pearson and myself made the 11 miles from Princeton in just 10 minutes. I hardly know where to begin to paint for you a word picture of the strange scene before my eyes, like something out of a modern Arabian Nights. Well, I just got here. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. I guess that's it. Yes, I guess that's the thing directly in front of me, half buried in a vast pit. Must have struck down with terrific force. The ground is covered with splinters of a tree. It must have struck on its way down. What I can see of the object itself doesn't look very much like a meteor, at least not the meteors I've seen. It looks more like a huge cylinder. It has a diameter of, what would you say, Professor Pearson? Well, uh, what's that? What would you say? What is the diameter of this? Oh, uh, about 30 yards. About 30 yards. The metal on the sheath is, well, I've never seen anything like it. The color is sort of yellowish white. Curious spectators are now pressing close to the object in spite of the efforts of the police to keep them back. They're getting in front of my line of vision. While the police are pushing the crowd back, here's Miss Wilmoth, owner of the farm here. She may have some interesting facts to add. Miss Wilmoth, would you please tell our listeners as much as you remember of this rather unusual visitor that dropped in your backyard? A little closer, please. This is Miss Wilmoth. Well, I was listening to the news. Closer and louder, please. Pardon me? Louder, please, and closer. Yes, 
I was listening to the news, kind of drowsing. They were talking about Mars. So I was half dozing and half... Yes, and what happened? Well, I was listening to the news, kind of halfways. And then you saw something. Not first off, I heard something. What did you hear? A hissing sound, kind of like this. Kind of like a big 4th of July rocket. Yes, and then? I turned my head out the window, and what a sworn I was sleeping and dreaming. Mm -hmm. I seen that kind of greenish streak, and then boom, something smacked the ground, knocked me clear out of my chair. Were you frightened of Miss Wilmoth? Well, I ain't quite sure. I reckon I, I was kind of riled. Thank you, Miss Wilmoth. Thank you very much. Want me to tell you some more? No, that, no, no thank you. That's quite all right. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just heard Miss Wilmoth, owner of the farm where this thing has fallen. I wish I could convey the atmosphere, the background of this fantastic scene. Hundreds of cars are parked in a field in back of us, and police are trying to tape off the roadway leading into the farm, but it's no use. They're breaking right through. Cars' headlights throw an enormous spotlight on the pit where the object's half buried. Now some of the more daring souls are now venturing near the edge. Their silhouettes stand out against the metal sheen. Now there's something I haven't mentioned in all this excitement, but now it's becoming more distinct. Perhaps you've caught it already. Listen, please. Do you hear it? It's a curious humming sound that seems to come from the object. We're not more than 20 feet away. Professor Pearson. Yes? Can you tell us the meaning of that scraping noise inside the thing? Possibly the unequal cooling of its surface. I see. Do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? Well, I don't know what to think. The metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth and, as you can see, cylindrical in shape. Just a minute, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw and the thing must be hollow. This is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. Wait a minute, someone's crawling out of the hollow top. Someone or something? I can see peering out of that black hole two luminous disks. Are they eyes? It might be a face, it might be... Good heavens, something's wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now it's another one, and another one, and another one. They look like tentacles to me. I, I can see the thing's body now. It's large, large as a bear, and it glistens like wet leather. That face, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hardly force myself to keep looking at it so awful. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is V-shaped with saliva dripping from its ringless lips. It seems to quiver and pulsate. The monster, or whatever it is, can hardly move. It seems weighed down by possibly gravity or something. But the thing's rising up now, and the crowd falls back now. They've seen plenty. This is the most extraordinary experience. I can't find words. I have to move farther away, but I'll keep talking as I move. More state troopers have arrived. They're drawing up a cordon in front of the pit, about 30 of them. No need to push the crowd back now. They're willing to keep their distance. Professor Pearson has been studying the object closer. The captain and two policemen advance with something in their hands. It's, it's a white handkerchief tied to a pole, a truce flag. Those creatures know what that means, what, what anything means. Wait a minute, what, something's happening. 
A humped shape is rising out of the pit. I can make out a small beam of light against a mirror. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing from the mirror. It leaves right at the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Good lord, they're turning into flame. Now the whole field's on fire. The watch that burns, the gas tanks, the automobiles. It's spreading everywhere. It's coming this way. About 20 yards. Ladies and gentlemen, we seem to be having some technical difficulties. Uh, we'll return to Grover's Mill at the earliest opportunity. In the meantime, more news pouring in from the Associated Press. Professor Indelkoffer, speaking at a dinner of the California Astronomical Society in San Diego, expressed the opinion that the explosions on Mars reported earlier are undoubtedly nothing more than severe volcanic disturbances on the surface of the planet. Well, th that's a relief. Ladies and gentlemen, I have just received tragic news from Grover's Mill. Just one moment, please. At least 40 people, including six state troopers, lie dead in a field east of the village of Grover's Mill. Their bodies burned and distorted beyond all possible recognition. The next voice you hear will be that of Major General Marjorie Smith, Adjutant General of the New Jersey National Guard. I have been requested by the governor of New Jersey to place the counties of Mercer, Middlesex, as far west as Princeton and east of Jamesburg under martial law. No one will be permitted to enter this area except by special pass issued by state or military authorities. Four companies of National Guard are proceeding from Trenton to Grover's Mill and will aid in the evacuation of homes within the range of military operations. Thank you. You have just been listening to Major General Marjorie Smith commanding the New Jersey National Guard at Trenton. In the meantime, further details of the catastrophe at Grover's Mill are coming in. The strange creatures, after unleashing their deadly assault, crawled back in their pit and made no attempt to prevent the efforts of the firemen to recover the bodies and extinguish the fire. The combined fire departments of Mercer County are fighting the flames which menace the entire countryside. We have been unable to establish any contact with Carl Phillips at Grover's Mill but we hope to return there at the earliest possible moment. In the meantime, oh, just one moment, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I've just been informed that we have finally established communication with an eyewitness of the tragedy. Professor Pearson has been located at a farmhouse near Grover's Mill where he has established an emergency observation post. As a scientist, he will give you his explanation of the calamity. The next voice you hear will be that of Professor Pearson. Professor? Of the creatures in the rocket cylinder at Grover's Mill, I can give you no authoritative information, either to their nature, their origin, or their purposes here on Earth. Of their destructive instrument, I might venture some conjectural explanation. For want of a better term, I shall refer to the mysterious weapon as a heat ray. It's all too evident that these creatures have scientific knowledge far in advance of our own. It's my guess that in some way, they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically no conductivity. This intense heat, they project in a parallel beam against any object they choose by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition, much as the mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light. That is my conjecture of the origin of the heat ray. Thank you, Professor Pearson. Folks, Here's a bulletin from Trenton. 
the charred body of Carl Phillips has been identified in a Trenton hospital. The Office of the Director of the National Red Cross reports 10 units of Red Cross emergency workers have been assigned to the headquarters of the National Guard stationed outside Grover's Mill, New Jersey. The fires at Grover's Mill and vicinity are now under control. Scouts report all quiet in the pit, and there is no sign of life appearing from the mouth of the cylinder. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a special statement from Harriet McDonald, Vice President in Charge of Operations. We've received a request from the New Jersey National Guard to place at their disposal our broadcasting technology and capabilities in their area. In view of the gravity of the situation, in believing that we have a responsibility to serve in the public interest at all times, we are turning over our facilities to the National Guard. We take you now to the field headquarters of the National Guard near Grover's Mill, New Jersey. This is Captain Lindsay, now engaged in military operations at Grover's Mill. The reported presence of undefined beings is now under complete control. The cylinder, which lies in a pit directly below us, is surrounded on all sides by machine guns. All calls for an alarm, if it ever existed, is now entirely unjustified. The things, whatever they are, don't even poke their heads above the pit. I could see their hiding place, plainly in the glare of searchlights. These creatures can hardly stand up to heavy machine gunfire. Anyway, it's an interesting outing for the troops. It looks almost like a real war. Well, we ought to see some action soon. A quick thrust and it will be all over. 7,000 armed men closing in on an old metal tube. <laughs> Wait, something is moving. A kind of shield is rising up out of the cylinder. It's going higher and higher. Why? Why is it standing on three legs? Rearing up on metal framework. Now it's reaching above the trees. Hold on. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a grave announcement to make. Incredible as it may seem, both the observations of science and the evidence of our eyes lead to the inescapable assumption that those strange beings who landed in the Jersey farmlands tonight are the vanguard of an invading army from planet Mars. The battle which took place tonight at Grover's Mill has ended in one of the most startling defeats ever suffered by an army in modern times. 7,000 men are armed with machine guns pitted against a single fighting machine of the invaders from Mars, 120 known survivors. The rest strewn over the battle area from Grover's Mill to Plainsboro, crushed and trampled to death under a metal fleet of the monster, or burned to cinders by its heat ray. The monster is now in control of the middle section of New Jersey and has effectively cut the state through its center. Land communication lines are down from Pennsylvania to the Atlantic Ocean. Railroad tracks are torn and service from New York to Philadelphia discontinued except routing some of the trains through Allentown and Phoenixville. Highways to the north, south, and west are clogged with frantic human traffic. Police and army reserves are unable to control the mad flight. By morning, the fugitives will have swelled Philadelphia, Camden, and Trenton. It is estimated to twice their normal population. Martial law prevails throughout New Jersey and eastern Pennsylvania. At this time, we take you to Washington for a special broadcast on the national emergency. The Secretary of the Interior. Citizens of the nation, I shall not try to conceal the gravity of the situation that confronts the country, nor the concern of your government in protecting the lives and property of its people. However, I wish to impress upon you, private citizens and public officials, 
all of you, the urgent need of calm and resourceful action. Fortunately, this formidable enemy is still confined to a comparatively small area, and we may place our faith in the military forces to keep them there. In the meantime, placing our faith in God, we must continue the performance of our duties, each and every one of us, so that we may confront this destructive enemy with a nation united, courageous, and consecrated to the preservation of human supremacy on this earth. I thank you. You have just heard the Secretary of the Interior speaking from Washington, D.C. Updates too numerous to read are piling up. Astronomers report continued gas outbursts at regular intervals on the planet Mars. The majority voice the opinion that the enemy will be reinforced by additional rocket machines. There have been several attempts made to locate Professor Pearson of Princeton, who has observed Martians at close range. It is feared he was lost in the recent battle. Scouting planes report three Martian machines visible above treetops, moving north towards Somerville with population fleeing ahead of them. The heat ray is not in use. Although advancing at express train speeds, invaders pick their way carefully. They seem to be making a conscious effort to avoid destruction of cities and countryside. However, they stop to power lines, bridges, and railroad tracks. Their apparent objective is to crush resistance, paralyze communication, and disorganize human society. We take you now to the battery of the 22nd Field Artillery. Range, 32 meters. 32 meters. Projection, 39 degrees. 39 degrees. Fire! 140 yards to the right, ma'am. Shift range, 31 meters. 31 meters. Projection, 37 degrees. 37 degrees. Fire! A hit, ma'am. We got the tripod of one of them. They stopped. The others are trying to repair it. Quick, get the range. Shift 30 meters. 30 meters. Projection 27 degrees. 27 degrees. Fire! Can't see the shell land, ma'am. They're letting off a smoke. What is it? A black smoke, ma'am. Moving this way, flying close to the ground. It's moving fast. Put on the gas masks. Get ready to fire. Shift to 24 meters. 24 meters. Projection, 24 degrees. 24 degrees. Fire! Still can't see, ma'am. The smoke's coming near. Get the range. <coughs> 23 meters. 23 meters. 23 meters. Projection, 22 degrees. <coughs> Army bonding plane. VA-43, Lieutenant Vogg, commanding eight bombers. Enemy tripods machines are now in sight, six altogether. One machine particularly crippled, believed hit by an army shell. Guns now appear silent. A heavy black fog hanging close to the earth of an extreme descent, nature unknown. No sign of heat ray. Enemy now turns east, crossing the river into Jersey marshes. Another straddle skyway. Evidence object is New York City. They're pushing down a high-tension power station. The machines are close together now. We're ready to attack. Planes circling, ready to strike. A thousand yards, and we'll be all over the first. 800 yards. 600. 400. 
200. There they go. The rays. Green flash. They're spraying us with flame. 2,000 feet. Engines are giving out. No chance to release bombs. Only one thing left. Drop them. Drop all of them. Plane and all. Warnings from New Jersey report a poisonous black smoke pouring in from Jersey marshes to South Street. Gas masks are useless. As you can hear, the local emergency alert sirens are sounding and are across the nation. All peoples of all American cities and townships are to be alerted to the Martian approach. Avoid travel and seek shelter immediately and until further notice. No more defenses. Our army is wiped out. Artillery, Air Force, everything wiped out. This may be the last broadcast. We'll stay here to the end. Service is being held in Christ the King Chapel, as well as the Cathedral of St. Raphael downtown. As they look off the limestone bluffs towards Illinois and Wisconsin, all manner of boats, overloaded with fleeing population, pulling out from docks to head down river and up. Streets are all jammed, noise and crowds like New Year's Eve in New York City. Wait a minute, the, the enemy is now in sight above East Dubuque. Five, five great machines. First one is crossing a river. I can see it from here, waiting. Waiting like the Mississippi, like a man wading through a brook. Martian cylinders are falling all over the country. One outside of Buffalo, one in Chicago, St. Louis. Seem to be timed and spaced. Now the first machine reaches the Port of Dubuque. He stands watching, looking over the city, his steel, cowlish head high as a skyscraper. He waits for the others. Now they're lifting their metal hands. This is the end now. Smoke comes out. Black smoke, drifting over the city. People in the streets see it now. They're running. It's reached the bluffs. People are trying to run away from it, but it's no use. They're falling like flies. <coughs> now they're rolling higher. <coughs> rolling up Loris Boulevard. A uh, hundred yards away. <coughs> it's, it's 50 feet. <coughs> As I set down these notes on paper, I'm obsessed by the thought that I may be the last living man on Earth. I have been hiding in this empty house near Grover's Mill, a small island of daylight cut off by the black smoke from the rest of the world. All that happened before the arrival of these monstrous creatures in the world now seems part of another life. A life that has no continuity with the present Fertile existence of the lonely derelict who pencils these words on the back of some astronomical notes bearing the signature of Richard Pearson. I look down at my blackened hands, my torn shoes, my tattered clothes, and I try to connect them with a professor 
who lives at Princeton, and who on the night of October 30th glimpsed through his telescope an orange splash of light on a distant planet. My wife, my colleagues, my students, my books, my observatory, my, my world. Where are they? Did they ever exist? Am I Richard Pearson? What day is it? Do days exist without calendars? Does time pass when there are no human hands left to wind the clocks? In writing down my daily life, I tell myself I shall preserve human history between the dark covers of this little book that was meant to record the movement of the stars, but to write, I must live, and to live, I must eat. I find moldy bread in the kitchen, and an orange not too spoiled to swallow. I keep watch at the window. From time to time, I catch sight of a Martian above the black smoke. The smoke still holds the house in its black coil, but at length, there is a hissing sound, and suddenly, I see a Martian mounted on his machine, spraying the air with a jet of steam, as if to dissipate the smoke. I watch in a corner as his huge metal legs nearly brush against the house. Exhausted by terror, I fall asleep. It's morning. Morning. Sun streams in the window. The black cloud of gas has lifted, and the scorched meadows to the north look as though a black snowstorm has passed over them. I venture from the house. I make my way to a road. No traffic. Here and there, a wrecked car, baggage overturned, a blackened skeleton. I push on north. For some reason, I feel safer trailing these monsters than running away from them and I keep a careful watch. I have seen the Martians feed. Should one of their machines appear over the top of trees, I am ready to fling myself flat on the earth. I come to a chestnut tree. October. Chestnuts are ripe. I fill my pockets. I must keep alive. Two days I wander in a vague northerly direction through a desolate world. Finally, I notice a living creature a small red squirrel in a beech tree. I stare at him and wonder. He stares back at me. I believe at that moment, the animal and I shared the same emotion, the joy of finding another living being. I push on north. I find dead cows in a brackish field, and beyond the charred ruins of a dairy, the silo remains standing guard over the wasteland like a lighthouse deserted by the sea. Astride the silo perches a weathercock. The arrow points north. Next day I come to a city. A city vaguely familiar in its contours, yet its buildings strangely dwarfed and leveled off, as if a giant had sliced off its highest towers with a capricious sweep of his hand. I reached the outskirts. I found Newark, undemolished, but humbled by some whim of the advancing Martians. Presently, with an odd feeling of being watched, I caught sight of something crouching in a doorway. I made a step towards it. It rose up and became a man. A man, armed with a large knife. Stop. Where do you come from? I come from... from many places. A long time ago, from Princeton. Princeton, huh? That's near Grover's Mill. Yes. Grover's Mill. <laughs> There's no food here. This is my country, all this end of town, down to the river. 
There's only food for one. Which way are you going? I don't know. I guess I'm looking for, well, for people. What was that? Did you hear something just then? No, only a bird. A live bird! Yeah. You get to know that birds have shadows these days. Hey, we're in the open here. Let's crawl in this doorway here and talk. Have you seen any Martians? Nah. They've gone over to New York. At night, the sky is alive with their lights. Just as if people were still living in it. By daylight, you can't see them. Five days ago, a couple of them carried something big across the flats from the airport. I think they're learning how to fly. Fly? Yeah, fly. Oh, uh, and it's all over with humanity. Stranger, there's still you and I. <laughs> Two of us left. Yeah. They got themselves in solid. They wrecked the greatest country in the world. Those green stars, they're probably falling somewhere every night. They've only lost one machine. There isn't anything to do. We're done. We're licked. Where were you? You're in a uniform. <laughs> yeah, what's left of it. I was in the National Guard. <laughs> That's good. There wasn't any war, any more than there's war between men and ants. Yes, but we are eatable ants. I found that out. What do they do with us? I've thought it all out. Right now, we're caught as we're wanted. The Martian only has to go a few miles to get a crowd on the run, but they won't keep on doing that. They'll begin to catch us, systematic-like, keeping the best and storing us in cages and things. They haven't begun on us yet. Not begun? Not begun. All that's happened so far is because we don't have sense enough to keep quiet, bothering them with guns and such stuff and losing our heads rushing off in crowds. Now, instead of rushing around blind, we've got to fix ourselves up. Fix ourselves up according to the way things are now. Cities, nation, civilization, progress, done. Yes, but if that's so, what is there to live for? Well, there won't be any more concerts for a million years or so, and no nice little dinners at restaurants. If it's amusement you're after, I guess the game's up. Well, what is there left? Life. That's what. I want to live. Yeah, and so do you. We're not going to be exterminated. And I don't mean to be caught either. Tamed and fattened and bred like an ox. What are you going to do? I'm going on, right under their feet. I got a plan. We men as men are finished. We don't know enough. We got to learn plenty before we've got a chance. And we've got to live and keep free while we learn. I've thought it all out, see? Well, go on. Tell me the rest. Well, it isn't all of us that are made for wild beasts, and that's what it's got to be. That's why I watched you. Watched you. All these little office workers that used to live in these houses, they'd be no good. They haven't any stuff in them. They used to run, run off to work. I've seen hundreds of them running to catch their commuter's train in the morning, afraid they'd be canned if they didn't. Running back at night, afraid they won't be in time for dinner. Lives insured and a little invested in case of accidents. Yeah, and on Sundays, worried about the hereafter. The Martians will be a godsend for those guys. Nice roomy cages, good food, careful breeding, no worries. 
Yeah, after a week or so chasing about the fields and empty stomachs, they'll come and be glad to be caught. You've thought it all out, haven't you? Sure, you bet I have. That isn't all. These Martians, they're going to make pets of some of them. Train them to do tricks. Who knows, get sentimental over the pet boy who grew up and had to be killed. Yeah, and some, maybe, they'll train to hunt us. Oh, no, that's impossible. No human being- Yes, they will. There's men who'll do it gladly. If one of them ever comes after me, why- In the meantime, you and I and others like us, where are we to live when the Martians own this earth? I've got it all figured out. We'll live underground. I've been thinking about the sewers. Under New York, there are miles and miles of them. The main ones are big enough for anybody. And there's cellars, vaults, underground storerooms, railway tunnels, subways. You begin to see, eh? We'll get a bunch of strong men together. No weak ones. That rubbish, out. As you meant me to go? Well, I gave you a chance, didn't I? We won't quarrel about that. Go on. Well, we've got to make safe places for us to stay in, see? Get all the books we can, science books. That's where men like you come in, see? We'll raid the museums, we'll even spy on the Martians. It may not be so much we have to learn before... Listen, just imagine this. Four or five of their own fighting machines suddenly start off. Heat rays right and left and not a Martian in them. Not a Martian in them, see? But men. Men who have learned the way how. It may even be in our lifetime. Gee, imagine having one of them lovely things with a heat ray wide and free. We turn it on Martians. We turn it on men. We bring everybody down on their knees. That's your plan? Yeah. You, me, and a few more of us, we don't the world. I see. Hey, hey, what's the matter? Where are you going? Not to your world. Bye, stranger. After parting with the artilleryman, I came at last to the Holland Tunnel. I entered that silent tube, anxious to know the fate of the great city on the other side of the Hudson. Cautiously, I came out of the tunnel and made my way up Canal Street. I reached 14th Street, and there again were black powder and several bodies, and an evil, ominous smell from the gratings of the cellars of some of the houses. I wandered up through the 30s and 40s. I stood alone on Times Square. I caught sight of a lean dog running down 7th Avenue with a piece of dark brown meat in his jaws and a pack of starving mongrels at his heels. He made a wide circle around me as though he feared I might prove a fresh competitor. I walked up Broadway in the direction of that strange powder, past silent shop windows displaying their mute wares to empty sidewalks, past the Capitol Theater, silent, dark, past a shooting gallery, where a row of empty guns faced an arrested line of wooden ducks. Near Columbus Circle, I noticed models of 1939 motor cars in the showrooms facing empty streets. From over the top of the General Motors building, I watched a flock of black birds circling in the sky. I hurried on. Suddenly, I caught sight of the hood of a Martian machine standing somewhere in Central Park, gleaming in the late afternoon sun. An insane idea! I rushed recklessly across Columbus Circle and into the park. I climbed a small hill above the pond at 60th Street, and from there I could see, standing in a silent row along the mall, 19 of those great metal titans, their cowls empty, their steel arms hanging listlessly by their sides. I looked in vain for the monsters that inhabit those machines. Suddenly, 
My eyes were attracted to the immense flock of black birds that hovered directly below me. They circled to the ground, and there before my eyes, stark and silent, lay the Martians, with the hungry birds pecking and tearing brown shreds of flesh from their dead bodies. Later, when their bodies were examined in the laboratories, it was found that they were killed by the pertrefactive and diseased bacteria against which their systems were unprepared. Slain, after all man's defenses had failed, by the humblest thing that God in his wisdom has put upon this earth. Before the cylinder fell, there was a general persuasion that through all the deep of space, no life existed beyond the petty surface of our minute sphere. Now we see further. Dim and wonderful is the vision I have conjured up in my mind of life spreading slowly from this little seed bed of the solar system throughout the inanimate vastnesses of sidereal space. But that's a remote dream. It may be that the destruction of the Martians is only a reprieve. To them, and not to us, is the future ordained, perhaps. Strange it now seems to sit in my peaceful study at Princeton, writing down this last chapter of the record begun at a deserted farm in Grover's Mill. Strange to watch children playing in the streets. Strange to see young people strolling on the green where the new spring grass heals the last black scars of a bruised earth. Strange to watch the sightseers enter the museum where the disassembled parts of a Martian machine are kept on public view. Strange, when I recall the time when I first saw it, bright and clean-cut, hard and silent, under the dawn of that last great day. This is Ryan Decker, your director of theater, out of character to assure you that the War of the Worlds has no further significance than as the holiday offering it was intended to be. Dolores Player's own version of dressing up in a sheet and jumping out of a bush and saying boo. Starting now and socially distancing, we couldn't soap all your windows and steal all your garden gates by tomorrow night. So we did the next best thing. We annihilated the world before your very ears and utterly devastated the Loris Dewhawk Digest. You will be relieved, I hope, to learn that we didn't mean it and that both institutions will continue their regular operations. So goodbye, everyone. And remember, please, for the next day or so, the terrible lesson you learned tonight. That grinning, glowing, globular invader of your laptops and smartphones is an inhabitant of the pumpkin patch. And if your doorbell rings and nobody's there, that was no Martian. It's Halloween. Tonight, the Dewhawk Digest brought you H.G. Wells's The War of the Worlds, adapted by Howard E. Koch, one of the socially distanced productions of the Loris Players 2020-2021 season. This production featured Ramsey Schultz, Sam Martin, Jake Heline, Josh Vogt, Liberty Fote, Emma Hennessy, and Sean Spicer, with stage management by Amelia Foley, audio engineering by Benjamin Drury, sound design, editing, and direction by Ryan Decker, produced with, by special arrangement with Playscripts Incorporated. This holiday season, be sure to come back for the Loris Players annual Guild of St. Genesius Christmas radio play. And for more Dewhawk Digest podcasts, as well as Loris news and features, be sure to visit the Loris Daily website at daily.loris.edu. 
We hope you'll join us next time for another Dewhawk Digest. Until then, take care of yourselves and each other, and go Dewhawks! <laughs>